0: Uh, let 's take our bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter eight uh, where we left off last week we left off in verse verse three moving into verse four as we have highlighted already, we have come out of the throes of vacation Bible school and it has been a fun and fruitful week. and There are memories that will forever be cherished. It's something about those songs that they come up with that is almost forever drilled in your head that whole week. I can still remember the 2007 Vacation Bible School theme song, Game Day Central. I can still remember that song to this day. It stuck in my head and this week was a, a week that was a, a busy week, a fun week, and I certainly had fun myself and enjoyed, enjoyed it. But the greatest hope that, that we have in all of this is that someone would, would hear the good news of Jesus, repent of their sins, and be saved. Okay, So if there's value at all in Vacation Bible School, it is that point, that someone would hear the good news, that they would repent of their sins and be saved. We had an exciting week, a time of joy. But you know, there is excitement and joy in knowing Jesus. There is joy in knowing that we belong to King Jesus and nothing will separate us from His love. And that you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is not some paganistic saying. That's not some weird off-the-wall saying. To be washed in the blood of Christ simply indicates His atoning work has been applied to our lives by our repentance and we are made spiritually alive. His blood indicates that substitute for us. And so, as we heard the song during the the offering we have joy unspeakable and full of glory joy unspeakable and full of glory but many of us are burdened down with the cares of life and really the joy of serving jesus is an afterthought or maybe not a thought at all and i submit to you as i have many times and many others i believe to have the joy of christ entails that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves often and reflect on the good news often and then seek to be pleasing to God in our worship and adoration Charles Haddon Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, said this of joy he said the greatest joy of a Christian is to give joy to Christ the greatest joy of a follower of Jesus is that today right now your position in in jesus you in christ that the lord jesus will look at your life right now that is hid in him and say well done you know we don't have to wait till we get to heaven for the lord to say well done that we can seek to please the lord here and now and that is what charles spurgeon is saying the greatest joy is to give joy to christ that he would be pleased with our adoration and our worship so my desire for you and your my desire for for me and for all of us who are hid in christ jesus is to serve him well right here right now and so we can expect our lord to say well done and be pleased to be pleased with our worship in the words of the apostle paul i want this to be my proclamation as i want this to be your proclamation and your goal as well the apostle paul coming close to the end of his life wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. He says this to young Timothy in the faith. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that objective. I don't want anything to come in in objection to that. Any idols anything that would captivate my mind other than Jesus. I want those things to be pushed to the side, and I can say I have run the race, I have kept the faith, I have ended well. It must be our greatest joy to know Jesus, and that He is our Lord, and that we have the privilege then to live out our faith. As Paul said, I have finished the race, I have fought the fight, I have ended well. Our greatest joy is in Jesus. We sang of that joy this morning. But today I want to speak to you on what it means or what it might look like for us to have joy in Jesus. So think for me, with me for a moment as I ask you this question and ask yourself this honestly and answer honestly. What brings you the most joy in your life? What brings you the most joy? Is it family? Is it children? Is it grandchildren? Is it your job? If, it, if you say your job, we need to pray right now. <laughs> you know the Sunday school answer, don't you? The answer to that should be, Jesus brings us the most joy. And knowing that at the end of this age, I'm going to be forever with Christ, worshiping Him forever. That should be our answer. But Most of us in here, present company included, would struggle with the tension of answering that. What brings us the most joy? What brings you the most joy? Which should be Christ. And so maybe it is that we strive in our life to make Jesus the most joyful thing in our lives. And so with that, I might ask you another question. What are some things that steal your joy? What are some things that steal your joy? If you'll hang with me towards the end of the sermon, we're going to answer that question on some things that might steal your joy. But the sermon will be entitled, from Acts chapter 4, verses 4 uh, Acts 8, 4 through 8, is entitled, The Reason for Joy. I ask you if you will, let's stand for the reading of these verses together, beginning at verse 4 and ending at verse 8. Now, I ask you, I hope you have your Bible with you. I often thought of this, Think about what it means to not have your Bible on hand, whether if it's hard copy, uh, electronic. It's almost like a surfer going down to the beach without their surfboard. It's almost like a, an army soldier going on the battlefield without their gun or without their ammunition. What good is it to you if you have not a copy of God's Word to live and learn by? So Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to, them in, proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame. They were healed. Verse 8, And so there was much joy in that city. Lord, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of this word. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ and Lord, that your word would penetrate our heart and mind, that Christ would be exalted and your church would be edified and sinners would come to know you as Lord. And I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week, if you remember, we, we got an account of Saul as he began his pursuit of the followers of Jesus that were congregated there at the stoning of Stephen. And because of this stoning, a great persecution began to, to spread. The early church began to spread like seeds to Samaria and to, and to Judea. And Saul was a top-notch Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had prestige in his lineage as a a Benjamite. He had lineage. He was a master of the law. After Stephen was stoned to death, Saul began his campaign against the followers of Jesus, which forced them to scatter like the seeds. And the image that I wanted you to to paint in your mind was like seeds seeds being scattered out in a in a field and they pushed they pushed out into regions of of Samaria and Judea like seeds being cast in in the field and God was going to water those seeds as we will see really through the whole book of Acts itself and a product of this persecution was now the church began to spread out this message of Jesus began to spread out the message of Jesus further and today we are introduced to Philip Philip is a deacon Philip will later on be labeled as an evangelist. But now, in these scriptures, we are introduced to the deacon Philip. He is like Stephen. He was one of the original elected deacons to help aid in the gospel administration and to help the apostles to preach. The deacons were called to, to witness and to and to minister and to help the apostles and to aid them in their ministry. But Philip is integral here in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, into regions of Samaria. I want us to look together at the narrative of Philip and the joy that the gospel brings to those who are bound by sin, bound by despair, and then those who are delivered from the burden of sin. And I think about my own testimony of coming to the Lord Jesus And really, the only thing that I can really say about that transaction, that Jesus saved me, was that the burden of sin was lifted. The burden of sin was was lifted. If you will, if you'll allow me just a few moments, there's two things I want to bring out in this text. Number one, the joy of salvation fuels missions. The joy of our salvation fuels missions missions to have a burden for the lost and then to reflect upon my own position in jesus that i am forever in christ and that he has me in his hand and, and that one day i was a wretch i was blind but now i can see i am saved there is joy in that and that fuels how we view missions look with me if you will in verse four the bible tells us that they were those were scattered about they was, these are the early church and they were preaching the word so not only Stephen not only Philip but all of those who were scattered were preaching the word that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah he is he is more than just a carpenter's son he is more than just a, a king over the Emperor he is the one who come to set the captive free Then verse 5 tells us that Philip went down into the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them this Christ, the liberator, the savior of the world. The world would look at these events that we have mentioned in the stoning of Stephen and the world would look at this persecution of the church and the world would expect this church or something like this that happened for the church not only to scatter and run but then... To hide. But it's not, that's not the case at all. That's not the case one bit. The church scattered and preached. Why? Well, because Jesus was crucified and died, and because Jesus rose again on the third day, and because many people saw him alive, it rocked their worldview. It rocked their worldview. They said, hey, we are persecuted for jesus the risen christ hallelujah let's go tell some people we need that attitude today the risen christ is alive he is my savior he is my advocate he is my king hallelujah let's go tell some people and i'm sure this was a fearful time as early church history was and even in places today it's a fearful time to be a child of God, but it is also an exciting time to see how God is, is using the persecuted church and, and is seeing people come to faith and the kingdom of Christ is growing daily. Once again, we are reminded the church was scattered because of this persecution. They began to preach the word of Jesus Messiah. You know, it's interesting that the word, if you find it in your Bible, this word for preaching is qualified by they went about or they kept on. They went about preaching and they kept on preaching. It was not a one-and-done tent revival meeting one time. They kept on progressively preaching the risen Jesus because Christ, the risen Lord, had so changed their lives that they could not keep quiet about it. I remember first coming to the Lord Jesus. I remember calling up my brother. I remember calling up my mom, and they were excited about it. And I remember calling up people, hey, I got saved tonight. I remember calling my friend. He's like, oh, well, that's good for you. I just thought everybody would want to be saved at this point. I just thought everybody wanted to trust in Jesus. It had so changed their worldview and their outlook on life that the risen Jesus Christ had changed their life that they couldn't be quiet about it even under intense persecution. And so, the two preachers that we see from Pentecost, other than the apostles, we see have been now Stephen and Philip, these two evangelists preaching, who were deacons. Neither were an apostle, newly elected deacons, and Philip would later become known as an evangelist. The beginning of Acts 1-8 framework at this point is underway the taking of the good news to samaria and then judea and this framework now is underway and philip is this integral part of preaching jesus to the samarian people and see to say that philip went to samaria to preach is not so much glued in on a geographical location but the people in that area it's not so much a geographic location such as samaria but the people of samaria in verse 8 to say that philip went down to samaria was another way of saying he traveled there he was forced there and so you might see that in your bible it says he went down to samaria well in fact if they were persecuted in jerusalem they didn't go down there at all it's like saying well i'm going to go down to mama's house today for lunch when in fact she might live up north In fact, if you were to look on a map, you might see something like this in an ancient map. You'll see Jerusalem in the middle, Samaria is up north, and Judea is down south. So Philip essentially went up, took the gospel up into Samaria. And then he said way up there in the corner is Damascus, which we will reference later on with uh, the the apostle Paul. And so Samaria north, Judea is south. This gives you the idea of the ferocity of persecution that Saul was enacting on the church, and they scattered out. Knowing the human nature and the propensity to stray from God, no matter how resolute and strong you might think that you are in your walk with the Lord Jesus, there are times when our propensity is to stray from God prone to wander as the song says we are prone to wander from god knowing the human heart and the condition and the battle of the sin and and with the flesh and and the spirit to to stray from god and had not persecution occurred the other believers the early believers and and all those in jerusalem would probably have never ventured out from jerusalem H.B. Meyer, in his words are helpful here, he says, how often God has to drive us by trouble to do what we ought to have done gladly and spontaneously. Had not God intervened in this way, the early church would probably be stationary in Jerusalem and would have never been pressed out towards the uttermost parts of the world. Throughout history, I wonder how many times, though, that the hatred of the enemy onto Christ's church actually has had the reverse effect. Persecution had the adverse or the a reverse effect. I'm sure history, early history, history is, is full of those occasions when the enemy would attack the church and then the church grew and, and flourished. How many times has the enemy attacked the church and the church flourished? And so is the case here. See, the gospel is bigger Than our little comforts and our little securities. The gospel is bigger than Piney Grove Baptist Church. Somebody say amen. The gospel is bigger than Piney Grove. The gospel is bigger than farm life. The gospel is bigger than Williamston. It is bigger than our little comforts and securities. And sometimes that's a hard lesson for us to learn. To be a believer in Jesus is more than saying this is me, myself, and I. And I get it, to come to Christ and to be saved and transformed, that is between you and the Lord. But to become a follower of Jesus means there is community. And at that point, being a believer in the kingdom of Christ is more than me, myself, and I. It is more than that style of faith. When the enemy attacks The church in Indonesia or in the Middle East or in Qatar. You understand that he is attacking the whole church and we must stand in solidarity with our brothers in those remote places. He is not just attacking Indonesia or Qatar or any of those places. He is attacking the church. But even in that, there is hope and joy in Jesus. You probably would go there and find this persecuted church and they would probably be the most joyful people. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how. The, the who is bringing the joy. What is, what is giving us the joy? When do we have the joy? Where do we have the joy? Why do we have the joy? How is our faith sustained? I'm going to share with you. I'm going to share with you what joy brings and how this is all brought together. I reflect on the words of Nehemiah as Ezra is reading the revisited word of God the revisited word of God that brought them joy and Ezra is breaking open God's word and Nehemiah records this in chapter eight and verse nine Nehemiah says do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength that answers The who, the what, the when, the why, and the how. Now we find all of that encapsulated in the work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is alive and risen from the grave. Stephen was stoned to death. Saul was chasing the church on their coattails. Philip was the next to step up to the gospel plate. And there is joy, as we sang or we heard play, joy unspeakable. See, the fuel that keeps this church going, even when they are pressed, is that Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit is present and is ever close with them. No matter what hardships come in life, no matter what we're going through, you understand that the Lord has never left you, will never leave you, will never forsake you. There's a song entitled, My Worth Is Not In What I Own. What I own does not bring me joy. The things that I have does not bring me joy. The things that I have does not define who I am. Listen, I am a child of God in Christ Jesus first and foremost before I ever am a pastor. If you're a deacon, you are in Jesus first before you're a deacon. My value is not in the things that I have or what I own. It is in Christ And the words are helpful to help us understand this joy that we have in Jesus. The words say, I will not boast in wealth or might. I will not boast in human wisdom's fleeting light. But I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other my soul is satisfied in Him alone. What made the church press on? Their satisfaction in Him alone. The risen Christ. What made Stephen and Philip preach in areas of danger? What made Stephen preach until his last dying breath in opposition of the enemy? What made Stephen preach in areas of danger? Of danger, and Philip exclaimed, The risen Christ. What gives you hope in times of storm? It is the risen Christ. Why do I get to stand here on a Sunday morning proclaiming the word of the Lord? It is the risen Christ because my soul is satisfied in Him alone. And how did the crowds respond to Philip? Well, verse 6 tells us they were interested. They were drawn to the words. But the Bible tells us that they were together in one accord. They wanted to hear. They were eagerly anticipating because they were together in one accord listening. And what's that next phrase? They paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard these signs and all that he did. So what are the signs? What are the signs? Secondly, there's a foreshadowing of restoration a foreshadowing of restoration. Not only is the joy of salvation what fuels our mission, but in this next discourse, there is a foreshadowing of the restoration of a time that is coming. Look at verse 7. This is what they see. Unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice. They came out of many who had them. And the paralyzed and the lame were healed. At the end of the book of Revelation, beginning at verse 7, Uh, chapter 21 verse 4 and 5 john who wrote the book of the revelation he writes of a time that is coming when there'll be no more sadness there'll be no more tears of of sadness the curse of the fall will be forever eradicated it will be realized forevermore and on into eternity there's coming a time when the lord jesus will restore this creation back to its place that is in the will of of the Lord. Repair it, if you will. Restore it, if you will. Refashion it, if if you will. And I believe in Acts, this is a foreshadowing of this restoration. In fact, as you read and you survey through the book of Acts, there are many places in Acts and also in Scripture that we see a foreshadowing of the restoration of all things. And this is one of those places in these verses that I just read to you today so here is here is Philip he is under the ministry of the Holy Spirit as Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit now we see that Philip is as well the Holy Spirit healed those that were possessed with evil spirits those who could not walk now could walk people were being healed people were being saved the gospel was being preached people were being saved now notice in this phrase if you will uh, it is actually in the second line down that says, Come out uh, of many of them. This, this phrase that the evil spirits came out of many in reference to the unclean spirits. This is an interesting usage of the Greek phrase to, to come out. It's an interesting usage of the Greek, the Greek language here. It is used in such a way as if these unclean spirits had taken up residence with these people for Uh, a very, very long time. And then something amazing happens. The preaching of the word. Something amazing happens. The liberating words that Jesus is Messiah broke the, the hold and the oppression. Imagine what a scene that would be. Imagine what a scene that would be to, to see something like this. What a powerful Savior that we serve. The, the mere name of Jesus and repentance that the leper could be healed, the demoniac could be liberated, the lame can walk. It makes me think of another song who breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and much stronger. He's the King of glory, the King above all kings. And this is his blessed, amazing amazing grace what a scene that is powerful savior we serve that the mere preaching of jesus and the movement of the holy spirit people the oppression and the chains were broken and and lifted later in the text we are introduced to simon the magician quote-unquote magician beginning in verse 9 and we'll talk about him a little bit more next time we meet together and these Samarians who had been deceived, they had been bewitched by Simon, they are now carried away by the gospel of Jesus that Philip preached. They were deceived, they were bewitched, they were possessed, if you will. Now they are liberated by the gospel. Sounds like this the word of God should make a lame man leap for joy. And this is enough to make a Baptist shout. Amen. This is enough to make a Presbyterian jump and do a jig in the aisle. This is good stuff. This is good news. It is the gospel that gave these people hope and joy. Look at verse 8. So there was just a little bit of joy in that city. The Bible says there was much joy. Overflowing joy. The floodgates were opened the liber- liberating message of jesus brings joy and this joy rose because people were sick now they're healed people were transformed by the gospel families and friends were converted revival seems to be on the horizon in fact this is this isn't even revival this is aviving this is a bringing a lie first. We have reason to rejoice. See, maybe we don't rejoice as much because we don't reflect on the gospel as much. John Owen, an American, uh, African-American Methodist preacher in the 1930s, he wrote a little snippet on the joy of the gospel. The question is, what is the reason for joy? That's the title of the sermon, The Reason for Joy. But what is the reason for joy? Listen to the words that he penned. He said, I experienced such an ecstasy last evening in prayer that I doubted if I were in my right senses. Christ was slain for me. I could give myself up to him unreservedly. I cannot describe my sensations of joy. I cannot praise God sufficiently for the scheme of salvation. I remained a long time giving thanks and praying that such a heavenly joy might not be taken from me. Lord, let me never lose the joy of salvation in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I remember growing up in a full gospel holiness church, at least that's what it was called, full gospel holiness church, and people would give their testimony. And they would stand up to give their testimony to the Lord. And one of the first things that they would always say is, what do you think? Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, God, for saving me. When was the last time you thank God for calling you and saving you? Lord, in, in the words of John Bowen, let me never lose that joy and let me never lose the joy of salvation in jesus christ who suffered and died on the cross and yet rose again but the reality is stinging for many of us and there's a reality that there are things that we in allow in our lives that will steal that joy there are things in our lives that are what i call joy thieves i've got a few things in closing now i want to share with you some things that will steal your joy if you allow And there's probably a multiplicity of other things that could be categorized uh, in this list as well things that steal your joy such as complaining and incessant negativity complaining and endless endless negativity you know what and what me, what made me think about this is social media. Probably the best thing for me to do is just shut social media off and not look at it at all. This past week, I could count probably on two hands the number of people who said that they were believers in Jesus, followers of Christ, who were complaining about the Walmart checkout line, complaining about McDonald's messing up their order complaining about waiting longer for their food, or saying something about the sweet tea at Bojangles, that it's not what it used to be. On and on and on and on, and I'm thinking to myself, is there any other thing that you can do in the day rather than complain and exhibit all this negativity and people are saying look this person supposed to be a pastor and all they're doing is complaining and this incessant nagging and endless negativity that will suck your joy more than anything number two procrastination i got something to do tomorrow and i'm going to put it off And every time I put off doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing for kingdom work, I get a little bit more bogged down. I get a little bit more ill in my nature. I get a little bit more honoring, procrastination. Knowing what we ought to do and do it not, the Bible says, is what? Sin. Sinful. So complaining, procrastination, gossiping. Gossip. Will steal your joy. And sometimes we decorate gossip, our, our prayer list with concern. And we say, we need to do this or that. In reality, we just want the, that little bit, a nugget of information that we didn't have before. And gossip can be a negative and a drain on your joy. Instead of gossiping, lift one another up. Instead of finding something wrong or negative with somebody, lift them up. Hey, if there's, here's, here's a, a good rule for gossip. If you're not willing to say that to that person's face, don't say it at all. Gossip will steal your joy. How about this one? Seeking approval of others. I don't think Philip or Stephen were seeking approval of the Pharisees. I don't think that Stephen walked in there and said, you know what, I better watch what I'm going to say here because I might make some of these Pharisees mad. I don't think that they had this approval of man on their heart and mind. I can spend and consume all of my time trying to please you. In reality, I know that I will not please everybody all the time in all places. In fact, I have an audience of one that I need to please, and that's God. Seeking approval of others. We can say that this is those who are people pleasers rather than pleasers of God. How about lacking integrity? Lacking integrity. It, it must be a tragic, a tragic history or a tragic life to be a person who is known for not keeping their word. We could say this might be somebody who likes to tell a white lie. Or don't, if they promise something, they don't uphold it. A lacking integrity. How about allowing circumstances to govern your spirituality? How about looking at the things around you and being so bogged down with the things of life that you are brought to a place of depression and your joy has been sucked out of you? Instead of making Jesus your all-sufficient Savior, as He wants to be, giving it all to Him, the Lord's going to work it out. The Lord's going to take my circumstances in my life, and He's going to work it out for His glory and for His honor. And yet, we are so worried and so worrisome that it would be offensive to the Apostle Paul who wrote in the book of Philippians not to worry or have concern about anything. How about living in the past? Wanting to look back at the past and, and, supplant it, and supplant it there and put it here. Superimpose all the things of the past and put it here. That we're so consumed with living in the past and it's not living up to the things in the past that we lose a joy because it ain't the way things used to be. And we want it. We want it so bad that we will do everything. We will fight tooth and nail for the things of the past to be the things of the future. And it sucks our joy because it will never live up to those standards. And then on the flip side, the fear of the future. The fear of the future. Fear of losing something maybe in the past. The fear of losing this or the fear of what is to come. We can can be so consumed with the things on the horizon that it will suck our joy you know what, I look at the world today and I can read the book of Revelation, I could read prophecy in Scripture, and I could easily say, man, things have gotten bad. The wor- God is judging this- God is judging this world, in case you haven't realized it. God is judging this world we live in right now. God is judging this United States. Not because we are not a Christian nation. No, because we are a sinful nation. Because we live in a sinful world. And God is judging that. Fear for the future. My hope is in Jesus for the future. Inactive prayer life. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. First Thessalonians 5, 17 says, Pray without ceasing. So my prayer is to pray without ceasing. And inactive prayer life tells me one thing. If I'm not praying, then I am prideful. Let me say that again. If we are not praying, then we are prideful because we say I've got it. Lord, I got it. You can take a seat. Lord, I got all this. An active prayer life consistently demonstrates that my attitude is I can't do this without you, God. I lean on you and your sovereignty. An inactive prayer life is a joy thief. It will rob you of your joy. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, just plain lostness just plain lostness a person who does not know Christ cannot experience true lasting joy and the times that I have met unbelievers that has said that they were the, they were happy I'm at the happiest place in my life always seems to be canned and manufactured, fake. Fake joy just to say, I'm joyful without God. And it seemed canned and, and, and fake and a facade. Let me say that again. You will not have true joy in your life unless you have the joy of salvation that comes through Jesus. True, lasting joy. Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day. This was what cemented all this together. For you, you can have that joy today, trusting in Christ, giving him your sin, and he being your savior, living for him and serving him forever and ever. For the church, I say to you this morning, do not let the enemy steal your joy. Sometimes it's not even even a measure of him stealing it because sometimes we give it up willingly. See, Philip preached the simple gospel, the simple message of Christ to the people, the Sumerian people, a simple message of liberation through Jesus Messiah, not the day of atonement, the atonement. They received the word, they heard the word, and they were changed. And this same Jesus who set these captives free is the same Jesus who will give you joy and sustain you in that joy. I have joy unspeakable, full of glory, full of glory, full of glory. Do you? Is there something robbing you of that today?